Hello and welcome to World War II Nation podcast with myself, Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Ross Corbett. A few months back, I had the pleasure of speaking with renowned World War II historian James Holland about the war in the West, Germany Ascendant, his first book in the new trilogy examining the events of the Second World War. In it, we discuss a bit about the book and what it took to write and research, some interesting facts about the Second World War, and in particular the Atlantic War that I just did not know. As well as this, um, we find out about what's next from James, including a little news on the Jack Tanner series. I also just quickly want to apologise for some of the audio quality and the appearance of my cat at times during the interview. Um, it wasn't actually really originally intended for use on the podcast, but I thought I'd share it with you, as you may find it of interest. Where and how did this exciting project come about and what inspired you to take on this massive and I'm guessing no doubt at times a little bit daunting undertaking? Well, the, the, the Damascene moment for me was I'd, I'd been sort of gearing up to this, this thesis on the war but, but the Damascene moment really came when I was researching the first of, of the novels I've done featuring Jack Tanner and I suddenly realised that, that while I'd been doing quite a lot of kind of, you know, um, frontline experience and looking at diaries and, you know, talking to veterans and all the rest of it, what it was like being in the war and what it was like to come under mortar attack or be flying a Spitfire or whatever it might be. And while I'd done an awful lot on strategic levels of high command and all the rest of it, I didn't actually really know much about the nuts and bolts. I didn't really know how, I, you know, I knew what the size of a platoon was, but I didn't know how it operated. I didn't know what uh, a section would be expected to do. I didn't really know, apart from the fact that they got endless amounts of hard tack and bully beef, I didn't really know. And the operation was the bit that has basically been 
some of the really popular history from World War, you'll get loads on, you know, what Eisenhower thought of Patton and his relationship with Montgomery, and you'll get loads and loads of sort of really fantastic detail, bringing it alive of what it was like being in Monty's Pack HQ and all this kind of stuff. There's loads on Churchill, loads on Roosevelt and Harry Hopkins and co. And you'll get lots and lots about what it was like being in the front line and coming under fire and all that stuff. What you won't get is how that actually works. There's no good saying, you know, Americans are incredibly anglophobic and, you know, Patton hated Montgomery's guts and vice versa. You've got to contextualise it. And you can only contextualise that if you understand the operational level. And that operational level is just reveals so much and shows you a very, very different picture in which, particularly, which is, uh, you know, I think traditionally we in Britain have beaten ourselves up quite badly about the Second World War. You know, there's the one extreme, which is the kind of sort of, you know, the plucky few in the Battle of Britain and, and sort of gung-ho films of the 1950s. The other extreme is the kind of sort of 1960s onwards view, which is all tied up with post-empire guilt, pride of Britain as a great empire, and that kind of sort of, you know, we were hanging off the shirt tails of Americans and actually we were all a bit shit. And, and you know, it's just completely wrong. You know, Britain was amazing, but then so was the United States. And the, the one country that actually wasn't that amazing in terms of efficiency and in terms of the conduct of their war was Germany. I mean, you know, and then you have to ask yourself, well, how come they managed to fight on for so long? And you sort of think, well, not that long, really. You know, six years, you've been in, you know, in Afghan for 13 and didn't really achieve anything. So, you know, again, modern conflict has also kind of put all this into a different kind of context. One is always a product of the age in which you're writing. But you think about the Germans, you know, after kind of autumn of 1942, the tide had turned irrevocably. I mean, they were not going to win in the Soviet Union in the summer of 1942. They, they missed that opportunity, or there was a high probability they were, it was all going to go tits up. They lost to Alamein, so they were... They were without question, going to lose in North Africa and the Mediterranean. You know, Italy would be knocked out of the war. You can't really see how they could have turned it around from that point onwards. Well, you know, if you look at 1918, Germany finds an armistice because it's not going to win the war and it's run out of cash. Well, on that basis, Germany should have given up the ghost at that time as well. But they don't. And the reason they don't is because of the iron will of the Fuhrer and all the rest of it. But, uh, and, you know, and that's just a completely different circumstance. You know, it, it's got to be all or nothing. It's got to be the thousand-year Reich or it's got to be Armageddon. And, you know, it ends up being kind of effectively Armageddon for Germany. So, you know, suddenly you're thinking, well, actually, to defeat Nazi Germany in kind of two and a half years, which is effectively what it is, or three years, actually it's quite good. You know, or, or get them to a point where they're not going to win. Um, and you think, well, who, who was doing that? Well, you know, America had only been in the war for, you know, nine months at that point. Um, and so who's doing the lion's share? You suddenly think, well, actually, Britain's got done pretty well. And then you kind of look at the end of war stats, and you look at the 132,500 aircraft that Britain's built. You look at the airfields that have been built all around the world, which are still kind of, you know, international airports today, you know, from, from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore to the Maldives. Etc. Etc. Yeah. And you look at that huge global reach, and you look at the huge merchant shipping, and then you, and you know, everything you start looking at, you're just looking at that logistic base. You suddenly realise that kind of, you know, the Germans are a bit crap, and, the, and Britain and America and the West are really, you know, pretty fantastic. And it just gives you a completely different slot, and I think that's really interesting. And I just think it's time that we looked at this afresh. For too long, the same people have dominated the narrative history, and. You know, they're looking at it with their Cold War glasses, with their kind of, you know, from a British point of view, kind of, um, you know, that kind of great power kind of glasses. 
you know, preeminent global superpower. You know, so for an American, it's impossible to think of Britain as an equal partner because, you know, it's little Britain, the big bloke. How can I have ever been that case? Um, and, and so all that is 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 sort of colouring the perspectives on the Second World War, and that's the ones that we've been, been showed in the last sort of 30, 40 years. I think it's just, you know, my own... I don't have an axe to grind or anything. I just I tell them to do it because I'm just so sick of reading what I call the declinist view. Well, to be honest, you've actually answered a few of the questions I was going to ask you there from that. I mean, you excellently draw on a number of ordinary people's experiences to help build the and illustrate the um, events going on at the time. Yeah. How did you actually go about deciding that you know those individual stories to choose? Because I mean, the way you've interwoven them, absolutely brilliant. The way it flows. Um, but how did you? How did there's so many stories out there? How did you choose those individuals, especially at the lower level? Well, it's really, really difficult. I mean, the, the thing is, what you do is you, you go, okay, I need to have a, a broad representation. I need industrialists. I need someone from Holland. I need someone from the United States. Germans. I need, you know, I need. And I don't just need Germans. I need frontline troops. I need um, uh, Luftwaffe guys. You know, I need a range. I need a submariner. I need merchant seamen, whatever it might be. So you're, you're trying to get that cross section. So that's your start point. Yeah. And then you think, okay, what's in my arsenal? Um, and, oh, yeah, okay, I've interviewed him before, that would be good. Um, you know, no one knows about him. And then some of them are kind of just published memoirs that you see. I mean, you know, to try and find a Dutch people is really hard. It's like you've only got so much research money you can spend on this. Yeah. Um, so to sort of go to kind of every archive in the country, it's just, you know, in the, in the world is or, or in Europe, it's just impossible. So it's a case of sort of just digging around and kind of, you know, you, you it, so, so to cut a long story short, I mean, the, the, you have to work out the kind of rep, the, breadth of representation you want and then try and find people to fill that slot. How long is, I know this is probably quite a vague question I suppose, but how long has it actually taken uh, to write and research this book, I suppose in particular, because I'm guessing it's the culmination of everything you've done so far? Yeah, well the research, you know, I kind of feel I've been researching it for 12 years, mm. but, but um, you know, intensively for kind of four. Um, the actual writing doesn't take very long, it's about six months, but, but you know, the big scheme of things. You get into a kind of the way I do it is I just basically sit down and just just try and not do too much else, <laughs> um, and I work long hours and I don't work late in the evening, but I work early in the morning. And yeah. I just I just pound it out, and I find it's important to write fast for me because otherwise I forget what I've written and I forget who's who and what I'm doing. And you know, I'm yeah. marshalling that huge range of of personalities, facts, different scenarios is really really hard. But I was really determined to do a narrative history of the war rather than uh, a kind of a segmented history of the war. I don't think there's any, any point in separating the Battle of the Atlantic from what's going on on the ground. Yeah. You can't, you can't have a sort of section on the Battle of the Atlantic and then have a section on North Africa, you know, because they're all interlinked. And that's, that's the whole point of the book is to show how everything affects everything. I think it comes across really well as well. I mean, I've, I said I've only up to, up to about chapter 10, but the way it flows so far is uh, so easy to read. It's, so, it's almost, at times, it's like reading one of your um, Jack Tanner books. It kind of okay, almost feels like right, the way it sort of flows. absolutely uses my ears. My, my mission in life is to do kind of, you know, what I hope is authoritative, well-informed history mm. uh, with readability. I mean, and on one level, you know, it should be very hard to make this stuff boring because... You know, it's the most incredible human drama going on, and you sort of think, okay, crikey, if you're making that dull, you know, what hope is that? But of course, the truth is, it's very easy to make it dull because, you know, people get bogged down with detail and, and you know, just how you construct it is 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 an art in itself, and it's all very well doing the research and doing the history, but you, how you present it is is 
obviously one of the one of the big challenges. You know, one of the problems is is, and it's a very 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 hard line to tread. Is you've got to have enough detail that people make you believe what you're saying and feel that they're kind of safe in your hands. But at the same time, you don't want so much detail that people get put off. So what I always try and avoid as much as I possibly can is units. You know, I try to keep numbers of units and cores and divisions and all the rest of it to an absolute bare minimum. Of course, sometimes it's unavoidable because it just, you know, I mean, I, I know when I'm reading books, you know, it's sort of, you know, then 131st Brigade did this, you know, on the second, you know, on the flank of 17th Brigade, and you're just thinking, oh no, that's absolutely lost. So it's it's a it's a real balance, and I think, you know, using fiction techniques such as bringing in sense, smell, sound. Um, all that kind of stuff, you know, that really, really helps, I think. So I try and do that as much as possible. There are a number of enduring and ingrained myths about the Second World War, obviously the German over-engineering, how amazing these weapons were, and obviously that perception. But sort of what are these big ones, and how far will these new trilogies, or this new trilogy go to answering and correcting these interpretations, in your opinion? Well, um, uh, you know, I I mean, I I hope it will, I mean, the thing you're looking for is 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 my new favourite acronym, which is DNKT, which is did not know that. And what you want to do is is have lots of little things in there where the person who's reading it is thinking, okay, this is not the kind of well-trod stuff that I, I I already know. This is something completely different. I mean, in terms of the entire trilogy, I mean, you know, part two's kind of I've, I've written that, and I'm I'm well on the way to kind of doing the second half. You know, I've got quite a lot of new ground to cover in in the third part. But, you know, I mean, there were obviously lots and lots of brilliant Germans and there were lots of very, very clever people. The point, I suppose the overall point I'm trying to make is, is that, that, that Britain and America particularly made absolutely the best. They get the best out of what resources they have. Whereas the Germans are constantly struggling against resources, and yet they don't use those resources incredibly efficiently. Of course, they're making a fantastic kit. I mean, you know, no one would deny the MG42 is a you know, fantastic weapon. But it's too good. You know, a lot of their stuff is too good. You know, and you can look at things like the gas mask case. And the gas mask case is absolutely case in point. So, you know, British gas mask case, canvas, a minimal amount of value, really cheaply made, but really efficient. It's got lots of compartments in it. It does the job. It can be used for multiple different different roles if you don't want to have your gas mask in there. Um, and if it rots or breaks, you know, so what? Just get another one because it's really cheap. Whereas the German gas mask guard case, which is incredibly iconic, an absolute feature of the, of the classic German infantry, but, you know, that long cylinder, it's heavy comparatively. It's cumbersome. It sits on your ass and it's kind of, you know, it just gets in the way. Um, it, it's hugely over-engineered. And they're still making these in April 1945. You just have to ask yourself, why? It, may, you know, it just makes no sense whatsoever. I found this incredible document which is going to go into volume two. And it's signed by, it's written by General George Thomas, who was the chief economic officer at the OKW. Uh, but it's signed by Hitler. There it is. In his pen, you can see Adolf Hitler. The, the document. It's written on, I think, over the 3rd or 4th of December 1941, so just before Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And one of the lines, I mean, I nearly fell over backwards when I, I read it. It says, we have to stop making such complete and ascetic weapons. Which... In other words, saying we have consciously been making complete and aesthetic <laughs> weapons up to this point. And of course, the truth is, they don't stop making complete and aesthetic weapons. And they carry on doing it. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. You know, it's all very well if you're fighting a six-week war. But it's a massive problem if you're not. If you're, if you're fighting a six-year war, kind of approach to, to stuff is, is, is completely, you know, it, it just doesn't work. I suppose one subject to touch on was... How has the release of previously censored and restricted archive documents over the last sort of few years or so 
been an influencing factor in your reinterpretation of events? Has it been a big factor? Well, I don't think it's. I don't think it's the opening of archives so much. Most nearly all the stuff I've looked at has been mm. open for years and years and years. So yeah. it's, it's it's not that so much. It's more that it's just easier to get to these, and it's easier once you're at these archives to marshal material. So when I when I wrote my first book, um, which was about the siege of Malta, I remember going and, and looking at the logs of um, HMS Uphold at the submarine. And I remember spending the best part of a week noting down in pencil oh my God. all those logs. And now, what, I, what took me a week would take me about 40 minutes. You sit there with your, with your, with your iPhone and you just photograph it. And you download it straight away and <laughs> there it is. And then you kind of convert what your photos, you sort of resize them, put them in, put it into a PDF, job done. In perfect clarity. Um, and, you, and what that means is when you're in the old days, you would have to be very, very kind of strict with yourself about what you took, which meant inevitably that there was tons that you left out because you just simply couldn't do it. You know, you couldn't make a note of everything. Whereas now you can just say, don't want that piece? Well, we'll just photograph it anyway, you know. And then you find six months later that actually it's got an absolute gem on it, which you hadn't noticed when you were sitting in the archive. So that's, that, for me, is the massive, massive difference. And that's why, of course, there's still so much to say. I mean, I was at, I was at Bobbington the other day and to, to um, Richard Smith. He's the completely brilliant director of the museum. He was showing me around all the uh, the archives, which I've used before, but I hadn't been into the kind of, you know, the vaults and everything. And he was showing me stuff. He said, there is tons of stuff that no one's ever looked at here. He said, there is a, you know, there are whole new books to be written about armor warfare and Second World War and indeed First World War and into four years that, that no one's ever looked at just because never got around to it. Well, the sheer amount of stuff that's there, yeah, I can yeah, imagine. Yeah, I was just going, wow, this is absolutely fantastic. So can we expect another another book by James Holland on the subject? Well, I think, <laughs> but the point is, is that when people say, you know, can, is there anything more to say about the Second World War? The answer is yes, there is tons of new stuff to say about the Second World War. You know, and, and to say there's, you know, history is interpretation as much as anything. And what, obviously, the amount of knowledge that you have on the subject, um, what has the experience of research and writing this new book taught you in particular? If you list sort of one thing you've learned specifically about it that you maybe didn't know before, what what, what would that be? About, about the Second World War? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's so much. I mean, I suppose the thing that's, that's one of the things I find absolutely amazing is that only 0.4% of Allied shipping was sunk in the Second World War. Blimey. You know, I just assumed it was kind of 20%, 30%, and 1.4% in the Battle of the Atlantic. 80% of all convoys got across unscathed. You wouldn't read just reading and seeing documentary stuff. That you definitely would not get that impression. No, because of course everyone focuses on the on the convoys that didn't get through. You know, it's, it's not very interesting to <laughs> a, a convoy sailing through, you know, unscathed. And, and nearly all the kind of heavy losses are all completely explainable and really less to do with German brilliance and dominance and more to do with Allied failings. So. You know, in the first part of 1942, for example, you know, um, a lot of that is about uh, the Americans refusing to have a convoy system along the Atlantic coast, you know, on, on the on the east coast of America. So they're very vulnerable. You know, when 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 ships were in convoy, it was very very hard to hit them. And most of the most of the, the vast majority of sinkings in the Second World War were not in convoy; they were when they were stragglers or lone operators. Sometimes you have to. So the answer is, well, why didn't everyone always go in convoy then? Well, the problem is with a convoy is then everyone arrives at once and all the people that are unloading it are then idle for the rest of the time, just hanging around waiting for a convoy to come in. And then suddenly it's all, you know, all, you know, all goes mad and everyone's got to sort of unload. So there are practical reasons for sending faster ships or 
very slow ships individually. It you know, staggers the amount of stuff that's coming in, and it also means that you know, if in the case of a very slow slow ship, you don't have to. Kind of, you're not holding back a convoy. Or in the case of a very fast ship, you might as well just go on your own because you're faster than a submarine. Sometimes there are points where you are going to join a convoy, but you haven't joined it yet, and you're vulnerable. So there's all sorts of nuances to that, but it's just absolutely amazing. And, and just you know, on any given day of the war, Britain had 2,000 ships operating on her behalf. It's just, it's just incredible. And when you think that Britain lost 2,452 ships in the entire war, that's a huge number. But when you then look at the other daily stat, it puts it all in perspective. And, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic was not a close-run thing. At its worst, it would have prevented Britain from uh, executing the war that she wanted to execute. But I don't think it ever put her sovereignty in danger. Well, that's just absolutely fascinating to hear that. It, it, just, it just, just changes amazing. perspective. It's amazing. I mean, I, I was as gobsmacked as you. And, and then you sort of learn things like about, you know, that, that Germany was one of the least automated societies in Europe in 1939. You think, what? I thought the whole German thing was based about kind of, you know, these winning Grand Prix and things. It's like, well, yeah, it was, but that doesn't mean to say that everyone had them. They just didn't. It's the image they projected, wasn't it? That what they wanted people to think. Well, it, yeah, but if you think about it, when's the, era, when's the age of, of big mechanical, you know, motor expansion? It's the 1920s and 30s, isn't it? What are Germany doing in the 1920s? Well, they're, they're suffering from post-First World War. They're finally getting their shit together at the end of the 1920s, and everything's going absolutely fine. And then there's a, the Wall Street crash. And then during the, the, um, the rise of, of the Nazis in the 1930s, it, all that money is being spent on other stuff. It's not, you know, it's being spent on radios, it's being spent on building projects, it's being spent on, on defense, it's not being spent on building, um, building cars. And then, and then, you know, think about, about how many Panthers and Tigers later on in the war um, break down. Well, why is that? Okay, well, partly it's because they're incredibly complex pieces of kit. The more complex something is, the more delicate it is, the more mm -hmm. likely it is to break down. Um, but one of the problems is that, you know, you've got people driving what is, you know, the rough equivalent, the technology of a Formula One car, which, you know, you and I could not just get into a Formula One car and drive it as smooth as, as ice. You just, you just couldn't. It, it would take you time. Who, who's driving these Tiger tanks? Well, they're, they're they're 18-year-olds who have never driven a car before. Is it any wonder they're going to grind the gears or overheat it or stuff? And, of course, that's exactly what happened. And, and so they all break down. It's those little things you just don't think of, isn't it? No, the things no, you assume. And if, you don't, if you're not a very automotive society, yeah, I think the figure is kind of one in like 47 people for every motorised vehicle in Germany in 1939. And that figure is 14 in Britain, 9 in France, 4 in Britain. If you have that view, you know, there is a knock-on effect because... That means you don't have so many garages. Um, it doesn't mean it means you don't have so many um, factories. It means you don't have so many people who know how to drive them. It means you don't have so many petrol stations because you don't need them. And so the knock-on effect when you're then trying to do total war, on which your whole war is predicated on the fact that you do things quickly, that's a problem. And that's why the operational reach of the Germans is really only about 350 miles because it's all about the spearhead. Spearhead is equipped with vehicles, and they can go fast, but after that, after that, that length of, 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 of distance, and 500 miles is about the absolute tops, they've literally, the wheels come off. You know, they can't sustain it, because the vanguard is too far away from its echelon, from its supply base, and they can't get fuel up and spare parts and gaskets. You know, and after a while, on that, that level, particularly when you're 
going across the Soviet Union, and there's hardly any roads and it's all rough. You know, think about all those shock absorbers. Think about those gaskets being blown and distributor caps that need replacing and all the rest of it. You just, you just cannot keep going. And at that moment, your enemy, which you're trying to overwhelm, encircle, and annihilate, has then given time to pause and kind of get, get its stuff together, and, and it could go on again. So anything more than about 350 miles, and it just doesn't work. And, that, and that's why Rommel's charge across the desert in 1942 is just suicidal. It's just... It's just that makes no sense. It makes no sense when he first goes into into Saranaka because, you know, you're too far from your main supply base. You can't sustain it. That's why he's always going to lose that anime. It really, that really brings it into perspective, doesn't it? The whole, as you said, the operational level that really has not been missed, but maybe overlooked. Um... Completely, completely. As I'm saying, saying, you know, all the histories you've read, if you've ever read your Carlo Deste or Mick Atkinson or whatever, it's all strategic and tactical. There's no operational art whatsoever. You know, it's just, it's just, it's completely kind of wiped out. And, you know, dare I say it, you know, the, the same with, you know, our best-selling British historians as well. You know, they're, they're brilliant books, and but on a level, you know, and, and, and without that operational, that explanation of the operational art, I mean, you know, the, it's, it's no good complaining about a 30-ton tiger, you know, Sherman tank and saying, well, it wasn't as good as a tiger. It's like, well, no, not if you line it up on a football pitch and they fire at each other. Clearly the Sherman's going to lose. But there's, there's all sorts of reasons why you would maintain a 30-ton tank in a battle rather than a 56-ton or 62-ton. That's because you're going forward. What happens when you go forward? You come across a river or a ditch. What happens with, to, you know, how are you going to get across that river? Because your enemy's not going to keep that bridge intact, are they? They're going to blow it as they retreat. Okay, so that means you've got to bridge it. What are you going to bridge it with? Well, it's got to be something that... that is easily moved around so that you can operate quickly. But is that well the optimum you know, the maximum weight really is a is a class forty Bailey Bridge, forty ton. So by the time you've got your thirty ton Sherman with its sort of extra stuff, ammunition, men, chickens, bits of wood, all the rest of it, it's still under forty tons and could go on a class forty Bailey Bridge. A tiger tank couldn't. So when you're in the advance, there's no good having a really heavy tank because there's still no means of you can't operate it. Um, so, so there's a very good reason for having those tanks, but if you don't understand the operational art, you know, the operational level, you won't know that. You'll just be looking at it as a battle weapon. It, it's more than that. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, and it's, and it's not just about, you know, if you look at look at Allied tank warfare, for example, it's not about how many tanks they build. It's about how many mobile workshops they build and, and tank transporters as well. I mean, you know, everyone goes about what a black mark Goodwood was, for example, 18th of July, 1944. You know, British lose. The you know, Second Army loses 400 tanks in a day. But what everyone forgets is that within three days, 303 of those were back in action. That is the operational level. You know, it's that ability it's to be right? able to recycle stuff and get stuff repaired and get it back in action again. And once a Tiger tank's knocked out, it's knocked out and it never gets back in the, in the field again. Absolutely fascinating to hear that. Yeah, it's really, really interesting, isn't it? Really mm. interesting. It's just, it's just a completely different perspective. Um, you know, you look at... Um, you know, the, the advances in medicine, the fact that, that Allied troops were being supplied with kind of three square meals a day, the fact that, you know, they've got plenty of cigarettes. All these things are really important, particularly when you're from a democracy. But, you know, actually, if you don't go, if you don't fight, if you want to sort of turn around and go back home, not an awful lot's going to happen to you. You might spend a few months in prison, but, you know, say so what, you're still alive. Whereas, obviously, if you're German, it doesn't matter. You'll have what you've got, and if you don't like it, son, you'll get shot. It's completely, it's a totally different way of doing things. So, you know, my, my thought is that the Germans are very ter- determined and disciplined, but they're not particularly well trained. It's not the same thing at all. I'll change the text slightly, because um, yeah. it would be interesting to hear your viewpoint on this. Um, last month, obviously, we marked the 70th anniversary of Japan's surrender and the ending of the Second World War in the Pacific Theatre. Mm. Um, 
you've sort of touched on this. How much do you feel that events in the Far East, I guess Britain's campaign there, uh, the war between China and Japan, and I guess even to some extent the East events on the Eastern Front are sort of overshadowed by events in the West and skewed by our own sort of nationalistic viewpoint? And how far will these sort of this new series go into uh, reinterpretation and writing this? Well, I think, I, I mean, the point is, is, is what's going on in Europe is obviously um, a far greater significant mm. consequence to the lives of most Britons living in, in this country because it's on our doorstep and, and proximity and the closeness of geography is really, really important. So obviously, from our point of view, you know, Britain is not going to disintegrate as a country if it loses in the Far East. You know, that, it's not that disastrous. Big scheme of things, it, you know, it affects our colonies and all the rest of it. But, you know, we don't have any of those colonies now. And, you know, you and I are perfectly content and having a very nice life. Whereas if we were covered, you know, if we were being um, overrun by, by Nazis, you know, we'd know about it. So it's for us in Britain, it's much more important, which is why we lay that much more stress on it. If you were a Chinese, obviously you wouldn't agree at all because it's what's on your doorstep. Having said that, I do think the war in the Far East is, is just... Absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, you know, I'm doing a book about it at the moment, and um, it's a small book, and it's just it's just amazing. And most people have absolutely no idea, even the basic chronology, of what happened in the Far East. So, in terms of the British experience, we know that you know Pearl Harbor happened, and then Singapore was lost, and it was you know the worst defeat ever. And we know about you know loss of Malaya and Burma. But what happened then? You know, no one has the faintest idea. You know, no. Okay, and then we won in in 1945, and Slim was brilliant, but but. That is about the limit of it, isn't it, mm. really? Most people have the faintest idea what happened in between. Um, you, know, was it, you know, was there war all the time? Were there pieces, moments of peace? You know, what, what was going on? Uh, and, it's, and it is endlessly fascinating. And my God, you know, we talk about the operational level in, in the war in the West, but, but the challenges facing them in, in the East were absolutely incredible. So, you know, I, I think it's fine to, to, to write about specific theatres and about particular aspects of, of, of the war, as mm. long as when you begin it, you set out your stall very, very clearly, and you say, this is a book about the war in the West. I'm not writing about the war in the East. I'm not writing about the Pacific War or Burma or anything like that. This is what I'm doing, and, and these are the parameters with which this book should be judged or this series should be judged. So I think that's absolutely fine. Definitely. Well... I'm utterly immersed in Germany's ascendance of Butterman. It's an absolutely terrific read. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and I'm already sort of very keen to look at, you know, read the next two. Do you have any idea when you forecast those to be released? I know it's obviously such a... Yeah, every year. Is it yeah, so literally year one year next year and then yeah. the one a- the year after then, is it? Yeah. yeah Fantastic. For those lovers of the Jack Tanner series, obviously this is your priority at the moment, I understand that. Um, where is next for our Wiltshire Warrior? What's, what's, what do you, where do you foresee him? Well, I'm really, really keen to continue with Jack Tanner. It's just I am a bit tied up with this. So <laughs> I can imagine. While I don't think. However, having said that, what the exciting news for me is that um, TV rights for Tanner have been bought by Idris Elba, not with him playing Jack Tanner, obviously, um, but his company, and they are partnering uh, with Carnival, who made Downton Abbey, and you know they're hoping to get it into production. But you know whether it does or not is. You know, fingers crossed, because that, obviously that's a massive game-changer. And then, you know, there will be an imperative to get on with writing more tanners, and that might take greater priority. And, you know, suddenly I have to kind of sort of readjust my, Switch your project, my schedule yeah. and off I go. But, I mean, no, what, what, I think when I do the next tanner, I think it'll start off with Salerno. It'll be withdrawn for, for Normandy, and it'll be, be the first. It'll be D-Day. One after that will then be, you know, breakout and 
into Belgium and into Germany. How do you remember everything, switching between so many different massive projects and you know all these finer details of the characters and keeping it consistent? Don't know, really. Um, don't know. You get into a zone. I mean, when you're doing a Jack Tanner, you kind of, you know, always refresh myself. I kind of skim read some of the others. I kind of mm. look at all my notes. I have sort of character notes, biogs of all yeah. the characters. So, you know, you sort of get back into it quite quickly. In terms of doing the non-fiction, what I do is I always have a chronology of all the, the main events. And then I have, in a different color or a different tone, um, my characters featuring in the book and how they interact into those bigger events. So you might have, you know, I don't know, 15th September 1940, you know, big air battles over Britain, yeah. kind of one tone. I don't know, thicker, it might be kind of, you know, Tony Bartley involved or whatever from 92 Squadron. And that gives me my, my skeleton. That gives me my kind of sort of, I can see what's happening in the world and what's happening in the war, but I can also see what's happening to the people, my, my cast list of yeah. people. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know whether that's the best way of doing it, but... You know, well, it works. It obviously works. It works, it works for me. But everyone <laughs> has their own different ways of doing things. And and what I tend to do is I, I have loads and loads of books and documents all over the place, which I scribble all over. I write ever everything <laughs> all the time, but in the margins. Um, and occasionally I make I make a, a note on another note saying, this is where this stuff is. <laughs> or I can find it quickly. But yeah, it's, it's, um... <laughs> that's the biggest problem. I mean, that's the really difficult bit. It's kind of marshalling it all. A big thank you to James for joining us. Um, we'll be speaking to him again shortly about his new book on the Burma campaign, which is out in April. Um, a huge thank you to you for listening. Ross and I really appreciate your support and hope you've enjoyed this impromptu episode. And looking ahead to episode three, we'll be speaking with Chairman of the Guild of Battlefield Guides, Mike Peters about Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily in 1943.